you've talked on your podcast about the market data that you received from various industry experts, people who are selling and, and buying and seeing what things are worth. We are definitely in a world right now where market manipulation is something that we kind of have to be thinking about because it's, it seems like it's a real issue. Do you think if you look back, was there ever a time that you suspected that people were reporting data to you to try to drive you to make to change things in the magazine? Or does, is that something that, we hadn't, that people hadn't really thought of at that point? It wasn't just invented. That was going, that's been going on since the beginning of time. Uh, we did two things, though, to, to fight against that. One is that we were not, uh, and again, when you're doing it, when it's uh, digitized like this, uh, again, on eBay, you can dig deeper and try to see who, if it was a truly consummated sale, a legit sale. But in the, back in the pre-digital days, uh, we were doing our own version of that, is that all sales were not equal in the sense of the quality of the data. We, we had somebody, that, and if you've met some of the guys who are on our team that are still in the hobby, they're really sharp, that we'd have somebody on the West Coast, the Midwest, and the East Coast pretty much every weekend tracking what was really selling and seeing who was selling it actually, because there were some people that were reporting prices that were really not true, but we knew that because we were there. It wasn't like, a, oh, I sold a bunch of these. And it was, we, we went by your table and it's still there. Mm. And, or we talked to the person that bought it and he said, no, I didn't pay 1500 for it. I paid a thousand for it. And then further, the other thing we did that is also something people don't do very much now is that we tracked non-sales, at least in my regime. And that is that when people are saying, hey, it's selling all day long for 1500 bucks on eBay, but you go to the show and there's a whole bunch of them there for a thousand and they're all, they're great. Let's say they're even graded. And you say, wait a minute, how can it be 1500 selling our hotcakes? If it was, then all the thousand dollar ones would be swallowed up. And so something isn't right. And so again, the hobby was much smaller then. And so we, we could do more follow-up, but over time we knew which dealers we could trust. And if they betrayed the trust, then they'd lose some credibility points. It didn't mean we'd throw out everything they said, but it meant we took with a grain of salt. And there are other, there's some really honest, reputable dealers, people in this industry. And we were blessed to have many of them as, as some primary sources for us. Just extremely well said, in my opinion, and just tremendous perspective. I, when you led with, this is something that's been going on since the beginning of the time. I just think yeah. that's, it's so smart. It's so I good. a compliment to our industry that people yeah. care enough to try to make money illegally. The problem is it's so easy to make money legally. It's uh, it, everything that they wanted things to go up too fast. They, a lot of that stuff eventually went up. But I'm not a get-rich-quick guy. I'm a get-rich-slow guy. Now, you've talked a lot on your podcast, which again, we should plug. It's Dr. James Beckett's Sports Card Insights. You've talked a lot about how you want the, the hobby to stay, stay sustainable. And I got a million questions on that. But again, I know we're running out of time. I, I really I really think it's smart to, to step back every now and then and realize that not everything just doubles every year. And, and, and we're in a market right now, it feels like that's being talked about in a lot of other places. And so I don't want to belabor that. Um, going back to the market manipulation thing, I will tell you a little bit about my collecting. I love the chase of the really rare items. And I err on the side of rare and, and interesting along with being iconic than just the iconic. I like, for example, I would rather have a, a one-off Ken Griffey card than a Ken Griffey, you know, rookie card, upper deck card. The upper deck card, there's so many of them. It doesn't appeal to me, but the thing that takes me a while to find, it has a chase associated with it. That's where my passion lies. And that's where my collection, that's what my collection looks like. The thing about that is that in recent years, We've seen more and more of those types of rare, really interesting items um, come out really since the late, since the mid nineties, it skewed that way. And especially this last 15 years, one of ones and the cards that are most popular now are numbered to 10. And what I think that does, I, I have my, my own thoughts on it, but I wonder, do you think that the market that we're in today is more easily manipulated than it was back then? And how do we, how do you think about how we protect ourselves as buyers from that? 
uh, yeah, it's more easily manipulated because you tell me if there's a manipulation, if somebody buys a one-of-one card at a high price, are you going to do a, an FBI investigation of the person or, or do a background check to see if there's a, a six degrees of separation of the seller? It's a sale. It's a legitimate sale. The card changed hands. And that's why the, the Beckett media guys don't normally really price the one-of-ones because it's very speculative by the, by the very nature. Now, when you have a whole bunch of one-of-ones, then you can do some comparisons. But it's, to me, that's almost a different hobby. It's, and it's exciting. And it's and it's there's a little bit of a gambling aspect. There's a little bit of a speculation aspect. Even when it's LeBron James, even when it's Luca or uh, Michael Jordan, even because you're talking about when you get a even five figures, much less six figures or seven figures. So I don't. So yeah, there's manipulation going on. So what is the antidote? The antidote is education, and that's I, I'm not, it's not my only mission in my podcast or yours in your podcast. But there's a lot of podcasts out there that hopefully are helping listeners to figure out what is real value. And when you look at X dollars for a card, uh, you've got to say, do I want that? And it, the answer isn't just yes or no. It's what are the other things I could get with that? That's why I really like what you're doing with your top 100. You're making a choice. If I really want this, then that's equal to these other two or three. Now, I could sell those, raise the money and do that and have a, a zero uh, sum game or, or a neutral cash neutrality in my hobby. But at some point, the prices get so high that you question that. And so if people are unquestionably unquestioningly buying cards, that's bad. Unless they're billionaires, if they're billionaires, they could just do what they want to do. But the average person ought to think long and hard about spending uh, big bucks on a card. And don't do it if you think the only reason is it's going to go up because everything's going up because it it goes up until it doesn't. So Jim, we can talk forever and I'm tempt, I'm totally tempted to. I I I got my brain's ready to go in about 100 different directions on on everything that you just said. I, I will say on the the cards needed end user. They need an end person who wants them. And I think sometimes people especially right now where there's just this excitement, this this exuberated I want these cards. I need these cards. Sometimes people forget that things go down. Sometimes people forget that they have to actually want them in the end. And I think for me, that's what I'm proud about most with my top 100 is that I really just like my cards and I don't, and for me, that's something that I want to, that I want to keep. At some point I might have to move them for whatever reason, but I think there needs to be, I think there needs to be an end user. 